Good morning, church. This is the day that the Lord has made. So what are we going to do? Yeah, we're going to rejoice and be glad in it. Welcome to the brook. I'm Pastor Eric. If you don't know me, um, I do hope to get to know you and meet you. And grateful to see our, our church family uh, just here gathered. And uh, just being able to see folks coming through yet again. We know that we've had so many different waves and surges of COVID in and out over the last year and a half, two years. And um, it's just, it's real sweet still when we can gather. And for those streaming online, uh, we know many of you are, are held back because of various health um, concerns. And we just are thankful you can still be a part of our community through live stream. And we suspect some of you are going to need a nudge to come on back. And we want you to come on back and be here in person with us. Um, family, it's, uh, it's exciting to always stand up here and preach. Um, I do want to reiterate an announcement that my wife made a moment ago regarding our Covenant Family class that's coming up this Wednesday. If you want to be a part of this church family, going to the class won't make you a part of the family, uh, the, the, the Covenant membership, but it's a necessary first step in becoming a part of it. So we need you to come on through. She says we are a local church. We should clarify because we have some Spanish speakers here. By local there's an L at the end of that, and not local church, um, although we may be uh, called that sometimes as well. Um, I'm also grateful to be here at the end of uh, our, our two weeks of prayer and fasting as a church. And I'd imagine some of you are saying, man, I didn't do it. Kind of wish I did now that y'all talking about it. And uh, we don't want y'all to be discouraged. We don't want you to even feel guilty or ashamed by it, but maybe inspired and moved toward uh, just seeking God through withholding of things we enjoy for a season in order to focus more on God. And that's what we were able to do. And, um, and the beauty of doing it in a community is we, we can be encouraged. So if you're going to do that on your own, maybe just text someone and say, hey, this is my plan for the next three days. Would you pray for me? Or, or tomorrow, this is my plan. Would you just pray for me? Um, even as we had our scripture reading a moment ago, uh, our brother Ricky read it. And just, uh, man, just, I was so moved in my spirit. Thinking about the saints of old, people like the Gideons and the Jephthahs and the Barracks and, and the people who crossed the Red Sea. And how at the end of that reading it said that they didn't receive what was promised yet. They, they had hoped that God would send a, a rescuer to them, a deliverer. But they never got to see that. They never got to see Jesus come. And it says, but, but it was not fulfilled for them, but it was for us. And that we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses who were waiting for the very thing that we get to experience and enjoy. And I just felt this overwhelming sense of just what a privilege it is that we're not there hoping that one day a rescuer would come. But we are standing looking back saying the rescuer has come. And we are those who are saying we enjoy the thing they longed for. And that Jesus went to the cross for us, not just like, God, I'm just so thankful. And yet so often I take for granted, like our sisters were testifying, like I, I get so consumed with life that the thing that people put their hopes in, hoping would come, has come, and I can overlook him. I was like, Lord, help me. And so, man, maybe you feel the same way. And as I was thinking about that, I was like, God, I want my priorities to be in line. I just want... I want to keep the first thing first because we know how hard it is sometimes to stay focused and we know how easy it is to let our priorities get out of whack. So this morning we want to talk about getting our priorities in line. 
could we realize that oftentimes in our lives, the things that take the bulk of our time and the best of our time are the things that are of less importance. Y'all with me on that? The bulk of your time and the best of your time, where does it go to? I think about my own life, the way God has wired me, and he may have wired you differently. I know my best time of the day is before like 1 p.m. And I know that after that, my brain's a little fried, and I just don't think with the same kind of clarity I do in the morning. So I know that if I'm going to get some study done for my sermon or, or get some really head work, I've got to get done in the morning. Because afterward, I, I just, I'm not as functional. But what so often happens is I get distracted with things of lesser importance in the morning, and they take up the bulk and best of my time. And then when I come to study, I'm like, God, I ain't got nothing left here. God's like, who told you to be checking your emails all morning, right? And I'm like, man, like just the simple things in our lives. And you think about it. I mean, this happens in all areas of our lives. It's like spending all this time setting the table for dinner, and you're like, oh, snap. I forgot to cook it. Priorities, right? Or that athlete who steps on the court, they got all this great-looking gear. They spent who knows how much money and how much time making sure their socks were in order, their, 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 their shoes were in order. And they get on the court, you're like, bro, did you even practice ever? Like you're, you, you look good, but you can't play, right? Or, or the, the student who puts all their time studying for, for a, an assignment that's worth very few percentage points in a large scale of things, and they got like a midterm exam two days later that they're not studying for. And we can go on and on in life how things of lesser importance, sorry for you students, I know I triggered you a little bit there. You're like, man, I got to get to study. But, but so many times in life, things of smaller importance, maybe not things that are insignificant, but just smaller importance take priority. And how often that happens in our own even faith journeys. There is a God, as Erica shared with us a moment ago, who is real and invites us to have a personal relationship with him. And God wants to know you and wants you to know him. And like he's like, I want, my, I want your world to revolve around me, is what God is saying. Like that's, that is the highest priority and how often we put God in the back burner of our lives. We put him in the back seat where like where he, we are his Uber driver. And he's like, can I get the wheel, right? And we, we, we put God behind and our priorities fall off. Today what we want to do is talk about how to get our priorities in line. How to make God at the forefront of our lives. And maybe even you're here today, you're still like, man, I'm still trying to figure out where God is at. I'm still trying to figure out if God is real. I'm still trying to figure out what kind of uh, relationship with him he wants or what kind of relationship I'm ready to give. And we want you to know, man, like we're glad you're here to explore that. We're glad you're here with us to journey with us. Because we know that there is a God that is real who wants to know all of us personally. And so today, yeah, we're going to take a look at getting our priorities in line. Because when they are misplaced, we got to make an about face. Turn around and pursue him again. In order to talk about this today, we're going to start a new series. It's a three-part series in the book of the Bible called Haggai. Can you say Haggai? Haggai. It's a tiny book in the Bible in the Old Testament uh, it's the third to last book of the Old Testament. And again, yeah, we have Bibles in the chairs in front of you. We brought them back. Uh, we put the Bibles there. They are on page, we're going to be on page 791 in that blue Bible. And we have said this for many years, and we want to keep saying this. If you don't own a Bible, 
Like, if you don't have a, a physical hard copy, we invite you to take home the one that's in the chair in front of you. Um, we at the Brook, we know this is God's word, and God's speaking to us, and we want you to have that. And so I want to invite you to stand with me as I read our passage for this morning from the book of Haggai. I'm going to read all of chapter 1, which is uh, 15 verses. Again, page 791 in your chair Bible, or if you've got your app or your, co- your own personal copy. And I'm going to read for us here. It's a little bit of a lengthy passage, but I think you'll follow along pretty well as it's kind of a narrative, kind of a story being told about a people who had their priorities out of whack and how God, in his grace, gave them the ability to make an about face. This is what God's word says in verse 1 of Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what he says. Thus says the Lord of hosts. These people, can you say these people? These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never, you never have enough. Uh, sorry, you drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth on the man and beast and on all their labors. Verse 12, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnants of the people, notice, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. Can you read these four words with me? I am with you declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnants of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. This is God's word. I'm going to pray in a moment. You know, as my voice feels a little tired because I feel like I haven't been preaching for a few weeks, 
And I do want to give a quick, I forgot to mention this earlier, just shout out to our brothers, Joshua Suh, Carrie Weiss, and Joshua uh, Phillips, who preached the last few weeks. Gave me a much needed break, but I'm glad to be back on the grind with y'all. So let's pray. Father in heaven, what a mighty God we serve. And Lord, I know you want to meet us here today. God, even just as I read those 15 verses, somebody's heart was stirred. Some of us are already cut to the heart, say, Lord, have your way. God, get my priorities in line. And so, Lord, I thank you, God, that already we know that this word is washed in your grace, that you are a God who reveals things not to shame us and throw us in a pit, but to expose our hearts in order to wash us with your mercy and grace and call us to yourself. And so, God, I pray you would work in our hearts. Speak through me, Lord. God, I'm just an instrument. I'm a guitar in your hands, Lord. Play me. God, speak. God, I'm your bullhorn. Just speak through me. And I pray that all of us would be able to hear you with ears to hear and see you with eyes to see. Be lifted high, I pray, in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may take a seat, fam. Man, I love this book of the Bible. I, uh, I studied it in depth for the first time about 15 years ago, and I remember thinking to myself, like, man, I was so unfamiliar with it, and I, and I was able to study it in a course I was taking, and immediately it just, it just it registered in my heart because I related so much to the problems God's people were facing in terms of getting their lives out of order. And I was so blown away by God's grace, and so I'm just really excited over the next three Sundays to unpack this for you. But in order to understand this book of the Bible really well, we've got to do some, some history. And I know some of y'all, any you guys are history buffs out there? You enjoy some history? Um, you got to understand what's going on in the background in order to appreciate what's taking place in the foreground. So the book of Haggai is written by a prophet by the name of Haggai. His name means festival because he was probably born on a holiday. And so he's a prophet of the Lord. And God calls him to bring a message to two people in particular, a guy named Zerubbabel, that's a name, that's a mouthful, right? Zeru Babel. The word Zeru means seed, and then seed of Babel, which is short for Babylon, which means Zerubbabel was born in Babylon. It says he is a son of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel is a descendant of King, Je uh, I forget this, and it's in my notes here, but I can't remember. I think Jehoiachin, or Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim was the second to last king of Judah. So Zerubbabel comes from kingly roots. Haggai also speaks to a guy named Joshua, who is the high priest, the spiritual leader. And he's speaking to these two leaders with the message because these two leaders are living in the land of Judah after God had brought back his people, his people from being captives in Babylon. So here's our history lesson. In the year 586 B.C., before Christ was born, God sent the Babylonian Empire to come to the southern kingdom of Judah where God's people were, where the capital city of Jerusalem was at, in order to conquer his people. And you're like, man, God, that's kind of bogus. And God's like, what's bogus is for hundreds of years I've been telling my people to worship me and they've been spurning me. And God's like, I'm a good God, I'm a good father, and I've been sending prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet 
to tell my people what they've been doing wrong. And every so often there might be one king who tries to turn the nation back to me, but the moment that king dies, they go back to their idols, literally worshiping gods of stone, gods of gold, gods made and carved out of trees. And God's like, I brought you out of Egypt, and you're going to worship something that you yourself created? And God's like, look, if you don't turn away, I'm a good father. If you don't turn away, I'm going to discipline you. Because I, in my correction, I want you to come back. And so God would bring correction in small ways. And he's like, man, you know, apparently the, the timeout's not going to work. Now you're going to be grounded. And that's not going to work. And finally God's like, you know what, I'm bringing Babylon. And they're going to take you out of this land I gave to you because you didn't appreciate the land. And that's what happened in 586 B.C. King Nebuchadnezzar came with his armies and they took hold of God's people's land, sacked Jerusalem, and in 586 B.C. destroyed the temple that King Solomon had built. And God's people were like, it's over. God has forsaken us. They were taken as exiles out of the land and marched hundreds of miles to the land of Babylon where they began to live now. And the prophet Jeremiah, right before it happened, said, hey, he told God's people, look, at this point, it's too late. So what you should do is stop fighting because you're going to die in war, surrender, and you'll survive as an exile. But then uh, Jeremiah gives this prophecy. He says, but God's not done with you. Because in 70 years, he's going to bring you back. But while you're in Babylon, build houses, plant vineyards, and bless that city because my people will be there. Zerubbabel was born there. Joshua probably was born there. And perhaps even Haggai himself. And God's people then, 60-something years later... We're given a decree from a king named Cyrus to go back home to their, to their land. God kept his word. And this first group of exiles returned back home to see the land in ruins. They didn't see everything the Babylonians had done, but they sacked it. They leveled the houses. They leveled the fields. They destroyed the temple. It was a ruin. And God's people came back and they wept. And they began to rebuild things. They actually began to rebuild the temple. They laid down a foundation like, God, we want to worship you here. We're going to lay down a foundation. But as they were doing that, there were opposition around them. People who were giving them a hard time, making their job difficult. So difficult, the people gave up. They said, man, we're tired. We can't do this. And they left the foundation there and never built the temple. It had now been 66 years since the temple was originally destroyed. And God's people didn't build the temple, but you know what they started to build was their homes. And this is where God decided to send Haggai. He said, hey, Haggai, I need you to go to Judah. And those people who are building their houses and my house is in ruins, I got a message for them that I need you to tell them. And this is what he says in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. These people are making excuses why they're not doing what I told them to do when I said they'd come back to my land. 
I love how God says, he says, these people. In the Bible, God always says, my people. He always says, my people. So the very fact he calls them these people, that means he ain't happy with them. That's like when one of our kids gets us upset, Erica's like, that son of yours. You know? It's like, you know, that, that child that doesn't take after me but probably takes after you, these people, not my people, those people over there, this is what they're saying. They're saying the time has not yet come to build the house of the Lord. They're saying for some reason it's not time. I think this answer to the question of why it's not time is a fascinating thing. It's not told what they're thinking, but there's some ideas we've got. The first thing is, Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 29, that in 70 years God would bring back his people. Well, this prophecy takes place about the year 520 B.C., and the years go backwards when you go into B.C., then you come from one when you go A.D., so it's a little confusing. But it's been about 66 years since God brought them back. And so many scholars think that the people in the land were like, hey, Jeremiah said it'd be after 70 years. We've only been here for 60-something years, so it's not yet time to rebuild the house of the Lord. And it's like God's like, what's wrong with being early? What's early for you may be on time for me. So perhaps it was the timing thing. The other thing was this. God had prophesied through his prophets that when the time of the temple be rebuilt, there will be some, some, uh, uh, some prosperity in the land and, and God's blessing. And they're looking around but like, man, it's looking ragged around here. Clearly it can't be the right time to do this. And maybe they're remembering, man, the last time our, we were trying to do this, man, we got so much resistance and so much opposition. It was so hard to obey God that it seems better to just delay our obedience to God. And so they're saying the time is not now. And God's like, these people are saying it's not yet time. But then God says this in verse 4. But is it time? For you yourselves to dwell in your panel houses while this house lies in ruins? It's remarkable. God refers to the temple as his house. It's not like God's like homeless right now, fam. The earth is the Lord's and all that's in it. God, God doesn't need a building. You can't box him in. But God does, though, choose to refer to the temple as his house to make a parallel for his people. Like, you guys are living in your own houses, and the house that's supposed to represent me is in ruins. Not just are you living in your own houses, but how does he describe the house in verse 4? You're living in your paneled houses. God's like, your houses are not just built, but they smell of a bit of luxury there. You, you got Chip and Joanna to come on and do some help for the, you there. I saw the property brothers on your block the other day. While my house is in ruin. And so God's there. He's saying, what's going on with this? You see, they opted to fuel their own comforts at the expense of obedience to God. I don't know if y'all heard me there. They opted to fuel their own comforts at the expense of obedience to God. They made their own personal comforts and security the highest priority of their life. And maybe they even thought to themselves, hey, we got the means to make our house look good, so that must mean then that God is blessing our work. They mistaken 
what appears to be prosperity for God's provision. Again, I don't know if y'all hearing me here, family. Sometimes we could think because things might feel good around us that that must be God blessing us. And God's like, your house is looking good, but your home is out of order. Just because it's put together doesn't mean it's me that's blessing it. Look, comfort's not always the enemy, family. But it often is. And God tells them that their outward comfort will never produce the inward contentment they long for. They, they wanted that, that internal peace in their lives. And so they tried to use the external comforts to achieve that. But God's like, look what happened to your life. Your home, your house was there, but you were not doing well. He says in verse 5, now consider your ways. I love it. Literally that phrase in Hebrew is something to the effect of search your hearts. Check out what's going on. And then God says this, look what's been happening. You have sown much. You, you put a lot of seeds into the dirt, but you've harvested little. When you expect the strawberries to be on the, uh, there growing in the bush, when you expected the wheat to come from the fields, when you expected the pomegranates, they weren't there like, like you sowed them to be. He said, God's like, did you never think why? He says, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat but you never have enough. That's how I felt with the chicken broth this week, fam. I was like, come on. You know, last week, uh, Josh was like, man, I, he was trying to refrain from using food analogies. Today, I'm going to try to go in a little bit here in a moment. But like, like God said, like, you eat, but you're never full. You drink, but you never have your fill. You have clothes on, but you're never warm. You, are, you earn money, but you feel like you got a hole in your purse. God says, consider your ways. See, he's telling them, look within and look around. Why haven't you never asked yourself, God, why are these things happening in my life? See, this is something we have to understand. Is that their outward comfort of their house could not bring contentment. Because even when they tried to get from the fields, even though they tried to drink and make money, it was never enough for them. Because the problem had to do with a spiritual issue, not a physical one. And basically God's like, man, consider what's going on. See, when you live for your comforts, we, be, we can become spiritually dull at hearing and seeing what God is saying and showing us. And God's like, I'm showing you all the mess around you, and you never once thought to ask, God, is there something we need to learn here? They became spiritually dull of hearing. They became spiritually apathetic. Like, did they never walk by the block and see the temple? Be like, man, that's not okay. The place of worship is down and my house is looking good. Is that cool? They became spiritually apathetic. And ultimately, they just became spiritually insensitive. God says, consider your ways because clearly they weren't doing that. They never searched their hearts. And so Haggai the prophet, I mean, he's going in on them here, man. He's saying, look, the house is in ruins. God's house is in ruin. Your house is looking all that. 
But yet around you, you're so discontent and you haven't got enough. You want contentment in your soul. It won't come through whatever we can bring into our lives apart from Jesus. God will oftentimes use discomfort to get our attention. That's what's going on here. In fact, if you jump down to verse 9, God says, you looked for much and behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. It's like whatever you brought home, it felt like it was gone. That's how it feels like coming from the grocery store. I'm like, these kids are growing. They just, it's gone, right? But God's like, the reason you're feeling this way is because my house lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself in his own home. That word alone, busies himself, just doesn't sit well in my soul. Because during these past two weeks of praying and fasting as a church, as I cut out media, I learned something as we were talking as a family last night. Because the first week I was like, man, media is so distracting. And then the second week, I was still distracted but without media. And I came to the realization that the problem is not media. The problem is me. It's me. Because we often are the ones who fill our lives with things other than God. And I was like, man, God, why do I do that? Am I afraid of some stillness? I'm afraid of what you're going to tell me that you want me to do? Am I afraid of obedience? Am I afraid of, of just hearing you? Do, do I find my identity in busyness? Do, do I find my, my belonging in what I've accomplished? And God's like, I need you just to follow me. Just do what I've called you to do. And God's like, what I've done is I've blown it away. Look in verse 11. He says, I've called for a drought on the land. Now, this is pretty wild. This word drought in Hebrew basically rhymes with the word ruin in Hebrew. And so, like, in Hebrew, it sounds like this. The temple is in Harev, so I brought Horev on your fields. Like, God's got bars, family. It's like, God's like, because the temple was bare, I brought no rain to the air. I made the crops wilt because my house wasn't built. And because of the temple neglect, these fields are a wreck. And God is using the discomfort, trying to get their attention, but because of them pursuing their comforts, they're dull of hearing. But God uses discomfort to get our attention. I came across this quote by this English writer, the, the great uh, narrative and storyteller C.S. Lewis. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so often in our pain, God is shouting, come to me, come to me, I'm here for you. Busyness won't produce spiritual attentiveness, just like outward comfort won't produce inward contentment. So what are they supposed to do? God has exposed their shortcomings. 
their misguided and misaligned priorities. Maybe right now you're like, God, I feel it. My life is out of whack. I'm prioritizing my, my own pleasures. I'm prioritizing my own dreams over against you. And my, these pleasures may not be wrong. Those dreams may not be bad, but they are not my God. And you're feeling this in your soul. You're like, God, what do I do? Well, this is what is so amazing about God is that he points things out in order to move us to action and give it in, as an opportunity for him to pour out his grace. And in verse 7, God says again, consider your ways, not just looking back, but I need you to consider your ways looking ahead. What you are going to do now? What are you going to do in response to this? And God says this, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. Plain and simple. Go do what I told you to do. So he gives them the manual for repentance. It's go, turn from what you were doing, and do what you're supposed to do. But he not only gives them a manual for repentance, but then he gives them the motive. Why are they to do this? Why are they supposed to build this house? And God says this, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. When I was thinking about this, like, God... Like, why do you want a temple? <laughs> like, you literally, you, you, you inhabit everything. Why do you want a temple? Well, in this time of the Old Testament scriptures, it was the place of worship. And what God is saying is, I want the temple because I want your worship. I want your worship. I want your devotion. I want your priorities. I want you to find your satisfaction in me. And when you are worshiping me, I take pleasure in that. He said that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. Like God's like, hey, when you exalt me, I'm pleased in that. I will shine my glory where you lift up my name. But then some of us might be like, God, but like, is it all about you? Like for real? Like. Like, so I'm supposed to neglect my own home in order to build you, to worship you. But what about me? And, and that's how our selfishness works. And God's like, look, I've hardwired you. Family, this is important. I need you to hear me here for real. I've hardwired you to have your satisfactions met, your longings satisfied when you worship me. God's like, I want you to want me because in me you will find your purpose. You will find your joy. You will find your contentment. You will find everything you want in life if you will come to me. This house isn't just about a house. It's about worship. And when you worship, you will live. This is God's love family. So God's like, I want to be at the top of your priority list. And the second thing I don't want to hear I don't want to hear. I don't like, like, I want to be there with no competitors. Because when I'm there, you will live. That's what God is crying out to his people. And that's why he says, consider your ways. Stop busying yourself up doing stuff, church family. And I love how our sister Arlen said it like, like the story of Mary and Martha where, where Mary's at the feet of Jesus listening and Martha's trying to serve food to everybody. And she's like, Jesus, this is just sitting down right here. And I'm here busy working. And, and Jesus is like, it's okay to work. 
but, but when I'm here, it's best to sit at my feet. And we come to God to learn from him in order to do his will. Because God tells his people, he said, don't just sit here at the temple foundation, but go and do something. Get to the hills. Go do my will and experience the joy of following me. Family, I pray that as we proceed in this year, we really come to understand that when we follow God, there is no satisfaction like that. And this is what God calls his people to do. So now we're here wondering, will they respond? Will you respond? Or are we going to keep going after broth when we want some Lumalnadis here? Are we going to keep going after what's lesser when God is offering us more? Well, I love verse 12. It begins with a simple word, but a word that means everything. Then, which means they responded. Zerubbabel, who is the governor of the land, and Joshua, who is a high priest, and all the remnants of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord. They're like, God, 10-4, over and out, we heard you loud and clear, no more excuses, no more self-indulgence, no more prioritizing me over you. God, we're coming for you, and we're coming to obey you. We want all of you, God. And so they begin to bring their goods together. And God says, hey, you're doing what I want now. And he tells them that by those four words I had you guys read. Right there in verse 13, I am with you. You see, fam, when we walk in obedience to God's will, God is like, I'm going to be with you. You may not feel me always. You may not always see me, but I'm there. I see you. I'm working in you. I'm doing something. I'm with you. I am God with us. And when they responded, they responded in response to God working. And as I read this, I wasn't sure what came first, and I suspect that that's the whole point. Because in verse 14 it says, and the Lord stirred up the spirit of, of Zerubbabel. Like, did you stir up their spirit to obey or did you stir up their spirit after they obeyed? And, and I think that's kind of how it often is. Like God will give us a word and we're like, man, when we're numb to it, like we're, we're quenching the Holy Spirit working in us. But then when we respond, we're like, man, God, I'm responding, but I wouldn't have responded on my own. I needed you to call me to respond. And so I don't know if it was you or me, but, but it happened and God, I give you the praise. And that's what happens here. The Lord stirred the spirit of Zerubbabel and of Joshua and then of the people. He stirred it up. He got them excited about obeying him. He got them moving into action. He stirred it up. It reminds me of the times I make pancakes. And you put the batter at the bottom of the bowl and you add the water. You might add some vanilla extract, maybe some brown sugar up in that thing. But if you just take it and pour it into the pan, it's just going to be a bunch of water with a little fragments of powder. What do you got to do, fam? You got to stir it up. You got to stir, but you just can't stay on the surface. What you got to do? You got to get deep. You got to scrape at the bottom of the bowl and mix 
and mix and mix until the powder and the water and the extract and all the sugar and all that good stuff becomes essentially one because then once it's fully stirred up, what's produced there on that pan is a pancake. That would be really good with some bacon. And God is like, look, my people who know me, like I live within you. If you put your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit, God himself lives in you. The Bible makes that promise loud and clear in Romans 8. And the Spirit is never going to leave you because you've been bought with a price, you've been sealed, and you will be God's child to the day you die. But what we can do is quench the Spirit. What we can do is suppress obedience to God. And God's like, let me get up in that heart of yours because I got some stirring to do. I'm, I'm going I'm to mix my word and with your obedience, and I'm going to stir that thing up together so that the product will be following my will. And God wants to stir your heart as he wants to stir my heart because he wants us to be worshipers. And he stirred their heart. And on the 24th day of the month, they started building. Now, if you do the math, that's three weeks after the prophecy initially came to them. Which means for the past three weeks, they've been gathering their supplies. They went up to the hill, got the wood, brought it down, and now they're about to get to work to build the temple. God had some stirring to do. I know he's got some stirring to do among us here today, fam. Surrender to him. Say, Lord, have your way in me. I'll make you the priority. I'm tired of living for my own comforts and security. The very thing that they did is the thing that you and I do so often. And we tend to think then in those terms of comfort and security, wondering if we just had a little more in our bank account, then I'd be content. If my home was just a little bit bigger, then I'd be content. If my car was just a little newer, had a few less miles, then I'd be content. Or if my relationships were a little bit closer, then I'd be content. Or if my job was a little bit better, then I'd be content. And so we put our comforts and our security as the highest priority and go after it. And God knows that is a pathway for failure. It's got more potholes than Fullerton will after this winter. It's a failing strategy to go after things that will ultimately be like putting money in a wallet with a hole in it. And so what does God do? Well, God knows this is the propensity of humanity, and this is the propensity of everybody who heard the message of his prophets. So God's like, I got to fix this thing. And he wouldn't come and send another prophet. He wouldn't come and speak to another high priest. He wouldn't come to another of kingly reigns. But he himself would come down to be the prophet, to be the high priest, and to be the king. And his name is Jesus who came down, God in human flesh. Because he knew that we go after comfort and security. But guess what he did? He laid down his comforts. He laid down his security. He took on this flesh and bones when he is God Almighty. He came through the womb of a woman and to be born in a lowly stable to be coming from poverty roots, to come among people he created and people who would reject him. 
He'd come and, and put all his comforts on the line, be rejected by us, be mocked by us, be crucified by us. He would do it, putting his security on the line because he was concerned about our true comfort and our true security, which comes through a relationship with God. Jesus is the only one who can satisfy our longings. He is our prophet, speaks the word of God. He is our priest. He stood on our behalf. He is our king. He will reign forever. And when he went to that grave, he rose up three days later. And he will always be, I am with you. He will always be God with us. He is Emmanuel. Put him at the priority of your life, family. Put him at the priorities of your life. He will never let you down. So when your priorities are misplaced, it's time to make an about face. Numerous times, Haggai's favorite name for God is the Lord of hosts. If you have the NIV Bible, it says the Lord Almighty. I think the New Living Translation says the Lord, the, Lord's, the God of the Lord's armies. The Lord of hosts is a term that's used to speak of God's power over his angelic armies. It's a, it's a term used that God does to flex his might. It's a term that God uses of his own self to remind us that he's the commander and that we walk by his commands. So when the commander says about face, we turn around in repentance. And that's what we do. When we find ourselves getting out of whack. So now the question on the table is for you as it is for me. If you find that God has taken the back seat of your Uber, will you respond by putting him at the forefront of your life? What that might look like is cutting off those things that you know are perpetual hindrances to following him. It's choosing to walk with him in prayer. It's choosing to, to say, you know what, I, I don't know where to start in this Bible, but God, I know in it you're talking, so I want to hear you. I'll read a verse a day. And say, I'm going to get in this community where people can teach me to follow God. I, I'm, I'm going to learn to, every decision I say, God, I, I want to hear what you have to say first. Because you are my priority. That's the offer to us. Will you be like Zerubbabel and Joshua and the remnant, letting God stir you to action? Or will you let the powder remain at the bottom of your soul? God's word just sitting there, not doing anything because you're not letting God do it. Man, fam, my prayer is that we'd respond and say, Lord, have it. And where I lack faith, give me faith. I need it. And if you come today and you're like, man, I have none of it. I have no faith. I don't know. But what you're saying sounds great. I want this Jesus. It starts right there. You crying out to God saying, God, I believe that Jesus died for me. He rose from the dead for me to my place. And through faith in him, I'm forgiven. Like, that's what I want. I want to live for you. At that time, when you put your faith in Jesus, you will be adopted into God's family. Become his daughter. Become his son. And be with him for eternity. And that's where the church comes in to help you walk with him. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and worship team, I invite you all to come up now. But after I pray, we're going to have a prayer team, two, two prayer people on each side of the stage here, eager to pray with you. 
and they, they, want, they want you to cry out to God. They want you to come forward. And if you got any questions, any prayer requests, and you're like, man, I don't know where to start, but I know God's not first in my life. Will you pray for me? Prayer counselors, if you're on the prayer team, would you like someone to come to you with that request? Yeah, amen to that. So let's pray, fam. Mighty God, I praise you that you're a God who not only exposes our mess, but you meet us in our mess. God, you're not just about the rebuke, but you're also about the restoration, Lord. And so thank you, Lord, for using Haggai to speak then, and thank you for using your word to speak now, God. And I pray, Lord, that our heart's burden will be to come after you. We say, God, you are first. Let everything else be a distant second, God. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.